Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's have a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you've given us each other, a spiritual family to gather with. What a celebration we've already had in singing songs about you and to you. And in those songs, they become vehicles by which we have conveyed our own anxieties and thoughts and hopes to you and committed those things to you. In effect, we have spoken to you in those songs. And now we pray that you would speak to us in your word. And we pray that we would have the same or more devotion in worship to what you say to us as what we sing or say to you. And that we would see this time as a time of worship. That's why we, we gather and we uh, remain and we listen with rapt attention to what your Spirit might say to our lives. I pray also, Lord, you'd satisfy the deep hunger that every person comes with. That we would be feasting in the right place. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, did you know that cookbooks are some of the most widely published and widely read books? I didn't know that till this week. Cookbooks. That must be because we love to eat. That's true, isn't it? We all love to eat. Uh, then the U.S. Census Bureau tells us that the largest category of establishments in America, the largest category is the category called eateries. Eateries, restaurants, cafes, bistros. Largest category of establishments in America. That must be because we love to eat. And then if you look at the Bible, it's interesting that so often the Bible, even Christ himself, uses analogies from food. This being one of them. I am the bread of life passage. The other most famous one is found in Revelation chapter 3, verse 20. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone will open the door, I will come in and eat with him, sup with him. Jesus must know that we love to eat. And it's true, we do love to eat. And because we love to eat, it shows. And so we have to fight the other battle, don't we, of the dieting. In fact, did you know, because we love to eat... That dieting is a $35 billion per year industry in our country. And it it amazes me that diets come out all the time, these new diets. It's it's the same rhetoric, but with a new label. Um, When I cruise, and, and I'm not a good TV watcher, I'm a bouncer. I spend a few seconds on each channel. The more channels, the better. But, uh, but I'll hear these advertisements. New miracle diet pills. Eat anything you want and shed those unwanted pounds. But wait, there's more. Act now and we'll double the order. You know how that goes. <laughs> One man went to a doctor for advice. He wanted to get on a diet. He knew that he should. He was afraid of what his doctor would tell him. So he asked his doctor to devise a diet that would let him eat anything he wanted. Well, the doctor smiled at his patient and thought about it a moment. He said, okay, try this. 
go ahead and eat whatever you want and eat as much as you want, but don't swallow. That's your diet. Another man said, I have the best diet in the world. I eat like crazy one day and then I starve myself the next. His friend said, well, that's interesting. How do you feel? He said, I feel good every other day. But, but now imagine having a bread that tastes incredible, that makes daily life wonderful, that saves you, secures you, and makes you live forever and is non-fattening. That would indeed be wonder bread. That would indeed be the best kind of life and meal to have. And that's what we want to look at in our verses today. Now, I want to give you a little heads up because I think it'll help you understand the Gospel of John in general. John shows us a pattern, or at least this is a pattern of John's writing. When he describes a miracle, he describes a miracle, but then he describes in great detail the sermon that comes after the miracle. So we have a sign first and then a sermon. In fact, the way John writes it, the sign is a setup for the sermon. There's first some miraculous work that Jesus does, a demonstration followed by a declaration. Here's a few examples that you've already noticed. In John chapter 2, all the signs that Jesus did in Jerusalem was a setup for the speech that he gives to Nicodemus on what it is to be born again. That's John chapter 2 and 3. In John chapter 4, the sign of Jesus being able to read and tell all of the intimate details of the Samaritan woman's life, that's a miracle, was the setup for his message to her on drinking living water. Remember that? Then in John chapter 5, there is the miracle of the man at the pool of Bethesda who was there 38 years. Jesus healed him. That sign was the setup for a long message Jesus gave to the audience on the fourfold witness of who Jesus Christ was. Now we have the same pattern. Jesus feeds the 5,000, better yet the 15,000 or so. And that sign was the setup for a long message on the bread of life. Now this is unique to John. And here's something else. When John writes about miracles, he adds less details than the other gospel writers. He just basically says, this miracle happened, matter of fact, but this is what he said afterwards. Whereas the other gospel writers fill in more details. So it's almost as though he wants to get through the miracle quickly and give you what is most important, the sermon. It's not really what he did that he focuses on, but what he said after what he did. That's very important. Now, why would he hurry through the miracle and spend all the time on the words? Well, it's simple because the miraculous signs merely reveal Christ's power. But the words that Jesus says afterwards reveal his plan, his purpose, and his person. See, if you have a miracle but no explanation about the miracle, it's like, that was cool. That's about it. That was powerful. That demonstrates who he is, but he explains who he is and his plan and his purpose in his words. So we want to look at verse 30 through 50 today, and we want to look at three ingredients. The message is wonder bread. We want to look at the menu. What is this bread? We want to look at the meal. How do we enjoy this meal? How do we approach this table? And then finally, the master plan. What will this bread do for us? Verse 30. 
Therefore, they said to him, what sign will you perform then that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? Our fathers ate the manna in the desert, as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. And then Jesus said to them, most assuredly, I say to you, Moses did not give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me shall never hunger. He who believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. This is the will of him who sent me, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. Then the Jews complained about him because, he said, I am the bread which came down from heaven. And they said, Is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How is it then that he says, I have come down from heaven? Jesus therefore answered and said to them, Do not murmur among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, And they shall all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father, except he who is from God. He has seen the Father. Most assuredly, I say to you, He who believes in me has everlasting life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and are dead. This is the bread which comes down from heaven, that one may eat of it and not die. Now let's just get in our minds the flow of events so we know where we're at. Jesus, the day before, fed the 5,000. Only the men were counted, so that's why we say there were at least 15,000 people that Jesus miraculously fed. Well, that was in the evening time. After that was done, Jesus marches his disciples to the shore of the Sea of Galilee, puts them in the only boat that is there, sends them away into a storm that would come later. Meanwhile, Jesus climbs back up the hill by himself away from the crowd with his father, And he prays. Sometime in the middle of the night, in the fourth watch, Jesus meets his disciples by simply walking on the water to them. And as soon as he gets in the boat, the boat is, again, miraculously at their destination. That would be Capernaum. The next day, in Capernaum, that crowd looking for Jesus searches for him, finds him in Capernaum, and confronts him. And we saw that last time, last week when we were together. Now this follows. And Jesus talks about the bread of life. So let's look at that. That's on the menu. What is the bread of life? Jesus says, and I'll just point out two places, verse 33, for the bread of God is he, it's a person, who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Verse 35, I am the bread 
of life. Now, why does he say that? He says that because they come asking him a question, right? Verse 30 is the question they ask. I want you to notice this. What sign will you perform that we may see it and believe you? What work will you do? That's the question they ask Jesus. Okay, so what's wrong with that question? They just saw the most humongous sign the day before. And they're going, we want a sign. You know, it's like, so what part of the miraculous free lunch didn't you guys get? You just saw a sign. We want a sign. But this time, they are comparing Jesus to Moses. Now, why are they doing that? They said, Moses did that. What are you going to do for us? Here's the reason they did it. Because they remembered that Moses, in Deuteronomy chapter 18, you can look at it later, predicted that the Messiah would come. And here's the language he used. He said, For the Lord your God will send to you another prophet like me. Him you shall listen to. That was the prediction of the coming Messiah. All the rabbis interpreted it as such. So he predicted another prophet like him. That's why in verse 14 of John chapter 6, they said, truly, this is the prophet who is to come. This is the guy Moses said would come. But in asking Jesus the question and saying what they said to him, they are marginalizing what Jesus just did the day before in his miraculous feeding. You know what they're saying? They're going, well, you know, Moses fed us every day for 40 years. So you had a good start yesterday. But keep it coming. So Moses must be greater than you are. Now, something else you may not know. The rabbis taught that when the Messiah comes, he will give manna to people. Just like Moses had done. Well, they lived with that thinking. So now they're asking, so... You fed us one day. And by the way, Moses brought it from heaven. You just took existing materials and reproduced it. So they're marginalizing Jesus' miracles. Now go back in your mind to the manna in the wilderness. That was the stuff that fell from heaven every day. And it was like little tiny balls. It looked like coriander seed, the Bible says. And they could take it and they gathered it. They could grind it. They could shape it, they could bake it, they could do a number of things with it, and I I suppose you'd have to get very creative since it's the same meal every day for 40 years, right? I'm sure Mrs. Moses had her book, A Thousand and One Ways to Prepare Manna. There's manna souffle, there's manna casserole, manna cotti would be a favorite. (laughs) For dessert, of course, it would be manna bread. Sorry. (laughs) And so Jesus responds to this question. And he corrects their thinking in three ways. He says, number one, it was God that brought manna down from heaven, not Moses. Moses walked outside of his tent every day, looked around and went, wow, like everybody else did. He didn't do it. God did it. That's number one. Number two, The manna was just physical food that sustained their physical life, but had no value for any eternal purpose. That's why he says in verse 49, your fathers ate manna and they're dead. All it did was temporarily sustain them physically. And number three, the true 
spiritual nutrition that you need is found in a living person, not a loaf of bread. And he said, I am, I am the bread of life. Now that statement, I am, is something I want you to take note of. Because you will find in the Gospel of John, there are seven I am statements of Jesus. This is number one. I am the bread of life. Number two will be found in chapter 8. I am the light of the world. And then number three will be in chapter 10. I am the door to the sheepfold. And then the next one is, I am the uh, great shepherd or the good shepherd, also in John chapter 10. And then the next one is, I am the resurrection and the life, John chapter 11. And then the next one is, I am the way, the truth, and the life, John chapter 14. And the seventh one is, I am the true vine. That's John chapter 15. This is the first one. I am the bread of life. So Jesus says that to them. And then you'll notice verse 34. Then they said to him, Lord, give us this bread always. You see, they still do not get it. They are still thinking in physical terms, physical bread. You know, here's Jesus talking about bread. It's wonder bread. It's the best bread. I have super bread. And they're going, great. This is fantastic. So hook us up. This guy's a walking bakery. Give us this bread always. Now, you've had this experience, haven't you, that you've shared with people and you've talked to them about spiritual truth and spiritual life. And it's like they're like deer in the headlights. They don't get it. They do not connect. They don't have the capacity, spiritually speaking, to understand. That's what's going on here. Jesus speaks to them about real life. Now, speaking of life, look at verse 33 again. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Think about that for a moment. The bread that Jesus is speaking about isn't the bread they're speaking about, right? They're speaking about physical loaves of bread. He's speaking about himself, a whole different kind of bread. Now, when he talks about life, he's talking about a different kind of life. They're thinking physical life. He's thinking in different terms, right? Now, this is so important, and I've shared with you before, it bears repeating. The word that Jesus uses here is very particular. It's the Greek word zoe, zoe. Now listen carefully. There's three Greek words translated the same one English word, life. One word is bios or bios. We get the word biology or biosphere from it. It's physical life. It's physical, natural, human life. Bios, bios. It's where most people spend most of their energy and concern. A Gallup poll asked people, if you could change one thing about your life, what would it be? Almost universally, the answer was my appearance, not my personality, not my spiritual being, but my appearance. That's number one. Number two, the second Greek word is psuche. We get the term psychology from it or, or um, whatever, that, that preface, psychology, psychoanalysis, psychotic. It means your personality, your inner life, your thought life. But the third word is this word. It's zoe. And this is a word that takes our focus off of the earth and sends it heavenward. It's more eternal life. It's a quality of life that is spiritual life that will last forever. That's the word that Jesus uses here. 
Zoe. The, the life that I give is real life. Now, Jesus uses this term not only here, but a number of places. One of the most famous ones is, I am the way, the truth, the Zoe life. More than biological or thought life, the life. And I think there's one thing Jesus said in John 10 that sort of sums it all up nicely. He said, I have come that they may have life, Zoe, and have it more abundantly or in super abundance, or to the max, or overflowing, or to the brim. That's the kind of life he's speaking about. I've come so that the whole world might have real life. To the brim, overflowing. Now, how many people do you know that really live like that? To the brim, overflowing, life abundantly. Henry David Thoreau once said, Most men lead lives of quiet desperation. Not to the brim. Here's the sad thing. So many people connect Christianity with the very opposite of living life to the brim. They see Christianity as something that really takes the flavor out of life. That takes life away from you. I remember when I first became a Christian, I told an acquaintance of mine that I had committed my life to Christ and I'm now serving Christ. He turned to me and said, oh, I'm so sorry to hear that. Now, he was being very snide, but I knew what he was saying. He was saying, well, I guess your fun life really ends, doesn't it? You can't really have any fun anymore because now you're a Christian. I had to assure him the fun has just begun. This is real life. And I think Christians ought to portray that if indeed they're feasting on this bread Billy Sunday used to say, if you have no joy, there's a leak somewhere in your Christianity. Life. So that's the menu. That's what that bread is. It is Christ himself, and he gives life. Now let's consider the meal. How do we approach the table? How do we enjoy this meal? Can we only get there by invitation? Or can anyone at any time just choose to go and enjoy it? Well, let's look at verse 36. But I said to you, you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. Now let your eyes go down to verse 43. Jesus said, stop murmuring among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them, and I will raise him up at the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will all be taught by God. Therefore, everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Now, he seems to be saying that on one hand, you can only come to this table by invitation of the Father. He has to call you. He has to draw you. On the other hand, he seems to be saying that you just have to believe. You have to come. That it's a human choice. And you would actually be very true in observing that because both of those truths are written into what we just read. Both are true. It's the same truth from two different viewpoints. One is a divine viewpoint. The other is a human viewpoint. From the divine perspective, God elects you and chooses you and draws you. 
It's God's doing. It's his sovereignty. And that's found in some of these phrases like, whom the Father has given to me. Or no man can come unless the Father draws him. That's the divine perspective. But the human perspective is that we make a choice. That's found in some of the language like, he who comes to me, or believe me, or you do not believe in me. So there's two things in play, right? Divine sovereignty and human choice. And they do not contradict. In fact, this is one of the very unique places in Scripture where both of them are found in the same exact verse, same breath. Both truths are taught. Look at verse 37. All that the Father gives me will come. That's election. It's whom the Father gives to the Son. Have you ever thought of yourself as a love gift to the Son? Isn't that a wonderful thought? Every Christian in redemptive history, and the purpose of redemption is to collect a group of people, and the Father gives that group of people, called the Bride of Christ, the church, to His Son as a love gift. You're part of that love gift. But that's divine election. No or all that the Father gives me will come to me. But look at the very next phrase. And the one who comes to me, I will by no means cast out. Now that's human choice. There's a doctrine, and I hope you love doctrine by now and don't hate that word. I love the word. There's a word called prevenient grace. Prevenient grace. Some of you have heard of it. It's the teaching that says... Before man can seek God, God must have sought the man or woman. And in seeking the man or woman, God elects, predestines, chooses, draws from the world, but also enables that person to make their own choice and come to him and cooperate with him. And uh, both are true, by the way. And I know that mystifies a lot of people. How can both be true? Well, here's a little analogy I've always loved. Um, last week I got on an airplane at LaGuardia Airport in New York and I flew to Dallas. That flight was put on the books before I even chose to get on it. The FAA, the Federal Aviation Administration, had determined the destination and the time of that flight. But there were a lot of people on board who made the choice to get on that plane. Number one, they chose to fly. Number two, they chose what airlines to fly on. Number three, they chose what date to fly on. And then once they got on the airplane, they weren't like chained up and prisoners of predestination. Those people on board could get up and go to the restroom. They could um, sit and read a book. They could talk to one another. They could eat (laughs) like a whole bag of peanuts, about that big, all four peanuts. But they were making choices. While they were living with those choices, all the while that plane was flying to a predestined port. And so both were cooperating together. So what do we do about these two seemingly contradictory truths? I know what we can do. Let's fight about it. Let's have the Calvinists versus the Arminian. They'll draw theological swords and they'll fight it out. They've been doing that for a long time. That really hasn't worked. That hasn't got us anywhere. I don't think that's the best way to do it. I think the best thing to do is twofold. Number one, have a glad heart. 
Have a glad heart. You know, instead of looking and trying to debate people who don't agree with this point of theology or that point of theology, why don't you just sit back and enjoy the fact that you've been chosen by God? Instead of going, I don't understand. How can God elect? How can God predestine? How can God choose? Get a clue. He chose you. Be really stoked about that. Eat up. Enjoy that bread. A glad heart. Number two, have a gabby mouth. What I mean by that is tell as many people as you can to believe in Jesus Christ. Let the word out. I was in a cab, several cabs in New York City. I was telling every cab driver about Christ. Well, where are you from? Because you know what? It's like the world converges there, and these taxi drivers are from all over the globe. It was world evangelism in like a week. And I would sow a seed. I'd plant a seed. So have a glad heart. Have a gabby mouth. Tell as many people as you can to believe in Christ. And I should add, by the way, in so doing, you will discover whom God has chosen. Maybe not that day, but maybe later on that seed will stick. Someone remarked to Charles Haddon Spurgeon, if you've heard me for any length of time, you know how much I love to quote Charles Spurgeon. By the way, Charles Spurgeon was a devout Calvinist, though he was very balanced. And somebody said to him, if I believed the way you believed about election, I could never preach the way you preach. The man said that because... Uh, Spurgeon would call people to Christ. Tell them to believe in Christ. Tell them they need to make a choice about Christ. So this person said, if I believed the way you believed about election, I'd never preach the way you preach. Listen to his answer. Spurgeon said, if the Lord had put a yellow stripe down the backs of the elect, I'd go up and down the street lifting up shirt tails to find out who had the yellow stripe and then I'd give the gospel to them. But God didn't do it that way. He told me to preach the gospel to every creature and that whosoever will may come. That's a good, balanced response. So we've looked at the menu, the bread of life. We've seen the meal and how it is enjoyed. Let's consider now the master plan. What will this bread do? What are the benefits of it? I remember as a kid, when I heard about Wonder Bread, some of you remember the commercials? Wonder Bread builds strong bodies... 12 ways. I never knew what those 12 ways were. I just knew 12 ways. And I went to their website the other day and I discovered they're still touting how good even their white bread is. This is beneficial. You'll get all the calcium, all the vitamins you need. Well, what will this super bread, this wonder bread that Jesus talks about do for people? Well, number one, it'll save you. It'll save you. Verse 47 Most assuredly, I say to you, he who believes in me has everlasting life. That's salvation. You'll have life because Jesus was the one who conquered death for you. And he promises life. It'll save you. Are you saved? Are you sure you're saved? I remember the first time somebody asked me, are you saved? I didn't have any clue what they were talking about. They said, are you saved? I said, from what? What do I need to be saved from? And then they explained to me about how we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and and what needs to happen. And as they explained it to me, it's like, well, I'm not how you describe it. You say, well, what does one have to do to be saved? 
Verse 37, Jesus said, All that the Father gives me will come to me. You have to come to him. I think that verse was the great hope of Jesus. He knew that when he shared his truth, when he would preach, that not everybody would listen to him. That many would turn him off. That many had no desire at all to listen to that sermon. But he knew that some would. And he knew that some would respond. And that's the hope of every preacher who pours his life out and his heart out in a message is that he knows not everybody's going to be into it, but he knows some will. And all that will, will come to him. Well, what does it mean to come to Jesus? Because Jesus isn't like physically here on the earth anymore, so how can anybody come to him? Well, to come to Jesus implies, though it's not written here verbatim, in the rest of the New Testament we discover... It means you turn away from sin and you turn to Christ. That's repentance and faith. That you separate yourself from your past sin and you submit yourself to Jesus Christ. That's coming to Christ. You have to surrender, submit, but also separate from sin. Charles Spurgeon again said, you and your sin must separate or you and your God will never come together. Because remember what Jesus said at the end of his famous Sermon on the Mount? He said, enter into what kind of gate? The narrow gate. The narrow gate. For wide is the gate that leads to destruction and many people enter therein, but narrow is the way that leads to eternal life and very few people will enter in that gate. It's a narrow gate. In fact, it's so narrow, it's like a turnstile. It only admits one person at a time. There's no two-for-one special. There's no family deal. If you believe, then we'll just automatically save your whole family. Every person comes one by one, And the kingdom of God is built one person at a time. But if you come to Jesus by separating from sin and submitting to Christ, repentance and faith, it'll save you. You will have eternal life. Second thing this bread will do is it will satisfy you once you come. Verse 35, I am the bread of life. He who comes to me will never hunger. He who believes in me will never thirst. There is a deep longing in the heart of every single person on earth to have the profound hunger that they have satiated, satisfied. They're looking for something beyond this life that will satisfy them. There's a deep longing. Everybody has it. Even great entertainers have that longing. Elvis Presley, the night before he died, he wrote a letter. It was found in the Las Vegas Hilton Hotel. Among the things he wrote in the letter, like, I don't want to be around people. Ironically, he said, I am so alone. I feel so alone. Even great scientists have that longing. Albert Einstein wrote a letter to his friend. He said, it's ironic that I am so known universally, but so lonely inside. Even great politicians have that deep longing. Ferdinand Marcos, who was once the president of the Philippines, wrote in his memoirs at the time, his second term as president, he said, I am the president. I am the most powerful man in the Philippines. But he said, 
I feel within myself a discontent. Well, even Solomon said that, right? He was the king of Israel. He had it all. He wrote a book about it. And he said over and over again, vanity, vanity, all is vanity. It's all empty. Nothing on earth satisfies. Did you know that the United States has the highest per capita rate of boredom in the world? Now, we have the most artificial amusements of any country in the world, but we have the highest rate of boredom. How many times have your kids said, I'm bored? Or you said, I'm bored. Or they all said, let's move to another place where there's more things to do because it's so boring here. And so you move there and you do all those things and guess what? I'm bored. Because that hole deep inside isn't filled by things and attractions. But by this bread. Is your thirst quenched? If your thirst is quenched, if your hunger is satiated, and you're a Christian, do you live like that? Do you show that? Are you the kind of Christian who just sort of walks around, head down, hi, I'm a Christian, life's a drag, can't wait till I get out of here and go to heaven. Oh. If it's good news, show it. Show what's so good about it. By the way, you know who put that hole inside of us? And by the way, Nicolas Cage said something interesting. The actor, he said, there must be a hole in the soul of my generation. Bingo. And Nick, guess who put the hole there? God did. That's how it got there. God put the hole in the soul of every person. Did you know that? Romans chapter 8 said, all of creation was made subject to emptiness, futility, vanity. God made us subject to it. Why would he do that? So that in our hunger, we would feast on the bread of life. That's what this message is all about that Jesus gives. So it will save you. It will satisfy you. And third and finally, and we'll close, it will secure you. Verse 40, Jesus said, And I will raise him up at the last day. I'll raise him up at the last day. Hmm. He says that three times in our text. He says something and then he goes, oh, and I'll raise him up on the last day. He says something else. Oh, and I'll raise him up on the last day. And oh, by the way, I'll raise him up on the last day. Three times. Now, why does he do that? Because he's giving to us this ironclad guarantee that eternal salvation is for all true believers, period. It's so ironclad that even when you die, and you will, unless the Lord comes back first, there'll be a resurrection of your physical body. Even in the face of death, it's a guarantee secure so it is true we do like to eat but have you noticed that not everything we eat satisfies us have you ever had a meal you go not so much on that meal ah. a show of hands honest hands how many of you have ever eaten at 31 flavors ice cream raise your hand okay pretty good huh okay i know you're gonna say well it's not my favorite my favorite don't care how many of you have eaten now, show of hands, at 567 flavors? Okay, so I, I didn't think so. Unless you lived in Venezuela. There's a guy in Venezuela named Manuel Oliveras who started an ice cream joint. He offers 567 flavors of ice cream. 
including onion. Yeah. Chili. Yeah, see, some, in New Mexico, it's like, yeah. And our, our, question, our question would be what? Red or green? Onion, chili, beer. I'm looking around to see how many guys are into that. Eggplant ice cream, smoked trout, <laughs> spaghetti and parmesan, chicken with rice, and spinach. Now, can I just say, some flavors are just wrong. That's wrong. Can you go into a restaurant and say, or ice cream joint and say, I'd like two scoops of your onion and one scoop of smoked trout. Not going to happen. It wouldn't be satisfying. It wouldn't be fulfilling. In fact, even Olivera said, many of my flavors have failed. Duh. Like his avocado. He said, I had to throw 90 pounds of avocado ice cream away. It wasn't smooth, smooth enough. This... And probably after 30 minutes, it turned brown, like avocados do. But, guaranteed, this bread will satisfy and save and secure you. It will give you the kind of life that people are searching for. Jesus will never fail you as a friend, as a source of nourishment, or as the dispenser of truth. Our Heavenly Father, we, um, we close by turning inwardly and thinking about our own lives. I believe there's a number of people who have come to church and may even come on a regular basis or semi-regular basis, They have come, but they have not come to Christ. They have not separated from the past. They have not submitted to Christ. They have not come to Christ. They've come to the place where Christ is worshipped. They've come to be around the people that worship Christ. They've come to sing songs about Him or even read words in a book about Him. But they have never personally surrendered. Thus, they're not satisfied. Thus, their thirst and hunger is not satiated. They're still looking. Lord, would you, by an act of your grace, in your sovereignty, draw them? That as they personally make the choice to believe in Jesus, they will have discovered that you chose them before they were born to be part of that love gift given as the people of God to the Son of God. As your head is bowed, as your eyes are closed, we're about to dismiss. But before we do, in this beautiful moment that we have together, I'd love to pray for you if you haven't given your life to Christ yet, if you haven't personally done that. I'd love to pray for you if you have at one time made some kind of decision in your past, but you're not, you're not eating of the bread of life. You're not walking with Jesus. He is so distant to you, and you want to come home and return to Him. If that describes you, would you raise your hand up? 
Just raise it up for just a moment. I'll, I'll acknowledge your hand. I'll pray for you as we close. God bless you and you. A couple to my left. Anyone else? Raise it up high so I can see it. Love to pray for you. Got to know who I'm praying for. God bless you toward the back. Anyone else? Anybody in the family room? Raise, raise your hand up. A few of you. Lord bless you guys. In the balcony. One, two. See you guys. And so, Father, collectively, we pray for those lives, those people connected to those hands. That hand was an indication. And I believe it was an indication of the fact that you love them and have drawn them to yourself and they are about to make an act of faith. And I pray that they would. And I pray they would discover the joy and the life and the purpose and the meaning And their lives would conform to that. And then they would be dispensers of this menu that hosts the bread of life within it. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. If you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque, please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org. If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.